In a world where high-performance, zero-defect buildings are hard to find, two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator. Here with my colleague and official agitator, friend, and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, Yoda. Hello there, everybody. Good to be here. (laughs) For today's uh, episode, we're going to be exploring how to improve health, experience, and performance in the built environment with our special guest, Dr. Nick Clements, researcher of all things good in the world of indoor environmental quality. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nick, the world uh, wants to know what made you give up almost a decade of your life to earn your doctorate degree, and how did you (laughs) land on stage with the Well Living Lab at the Mayo Clinic? From what we understand, it's one of the first labs exclusively committed to research in the world, real-world impact of the indoor environment and human health. So tell us your story. Sure, sure. Thank you for having me. So I got started, uh, I was doing my PhD at the University of Colorado Boulder, and when I, when I finished that up, I transitioned into a project in surge capacity for hospitals. So that's expanding isolation room capacity in the event of a pandemic flu event or other pandemic event. And that kind of got me back into the world of buildings. And so towards the end of that, my tenure on that project as a postdoc, I got contacted by someone at Delos. And they were interested in kind of what I was doing and what experience I had with sensors. And they brought up the fact that they were building this well-living lab in Rochester, Minnesota, uh, which is in collaboration with the Mayo Clinic. Our conversations kind of led to my next project, what's it going to be? And on January 4th of last year, I moved out to the tundra of southeastern Minnesota and started my tenure with the well-living lab as uh, kind of their in-house engineer. I spent about a year and a few months with the Well Living Lab, just recently moved to working remotely with them as a consultant, but still spending my full time with the Well Living Lab. Kind of the goal of the lab is really to conduct human subject research with the kind of aim of improving wellness or health or experience performance in the built environment. So it's a very broad goal. And we're still working on kind of narrowing down exactly what we're going to research because it's such a broad topic. And we have a great scientific advisory board and leadership team that helps helps us kind of figure out what we should investigate at the lab. A couple of questions came to me there. Wow, CDC, that sounds a bit severe. <laughs> How scary was that? It was a, it was a fascinating experience. So about two months into my pro, into the infection control project, the Ebola epidemic really started getting bad in West Africa. And we were planning for planning our entire experiment around the scope of flu and what you would do for an airborne infection. And then we kind of start, started thinking very closely about contact transmission diseases and how much different the processes would be in the same scenario if, if the disease transmission was different. And it was actually a great thing for the project because we ended up paying way more attention to personal protective equipment, donning and doffing procedures than we probably would have uh, if we hadn't, you know, had that Ebola epidemic happening at the time. But it was it was a big topic on our mind. And, and when we actually went and did the, the demonstration of our of our negative pressure isolation ward, the hospital that we were working at had an Ebola tent set up and had a whole kind of preparedness plan arranged. And so it really kind of speaks to how forward thinking this particular hospital was in preparing for various pandemic infections. And uh, that project was with VA, so they have an infection control division. And the paper is just about to come out in the American Journal of Infection Control. So it's on preprint online if you'd like to see it now. Wow, that's really interesting. So uh, a low-consequences environment, eh? Not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. The um, There was a review saying, oh, what about comfort? And, and kind of we, our response was, well... 
Let's make that a little lower of a priority. <laughs> yeah, what about staying alive would be a better question. It, it's totally valid if you have a three yeah. month, or you know, a, a isolation ward lasting for months. It's you know, you have people working in their day to day. You have patients that need to be taken care of, and so it's a priority, just not the first couple priorities that the experiment was focusing on. Mm. Right. Yeah. So that makes it interesting. So working with the VA in that in particular environment. Where did the Mayo Clinic fit in with the Well Lab? Tell us a little bit about that relationship. Sure, sure. So uh, I came along after the relationship was established. But um, kind of early on, Delos was really interested in partnering with a medical facility for building this lab. And through some kind of personal connections, they, they were in contact with a design house that is within Mayo Clinic called the Center for Innovation. And the Center for Innovations does a lot of work in kind of designing around the healthcare practice. And they have an awesome team of designers and engineers and coordinators that work with the Mayo Clinic to do various projects. And through that connection, they uh, started discussing whether or not it would be possible to build a lab in collaboration with the Mayo Clinic. So right now, the lab is supported by both the Mayo Clinic and Delos. And a lot of the staff come from both sides of the house. So it's a really interesting opportunity to to see how two very different organizations can come together and work on something kind of as ambitious as this. Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, you've got in a clinical environment, there's some hard, there's some hard asks, right? That just have to be met no matter what. So whether you've got a great contractor and design team or not, (laughs) whatever happens, the output has to be of a certain standard, right? Right. And given the variability in standards in the construction and building industry, it's, uh, it's a worry, actually. How how does the Mayo Clinic, uh, I know it's hard to speak to them, but just on your experience, how, how do they deal with that? Because there is a variability in output and quality. You know, we work pretty closely with all of our contractors to make sure that whatever we're doing is kind of to, to our quality that we would expect. And the Mayo Clinic Rochester is kind of an odd town where a lot, a lot of the city is dedicated to running the Mayo Clinic. Uh, it's a bit of a company town in that, in that sense. And we kind of get lucky because the Mayo Clinic has pretty high standards for how their buildings are managed. And so we get to inherit a lot of those standards and as well as work with a lot of the local contractors that are held to those standards. But, you know, problems arise and I'm learning a lot by trial by fire to I, whenever we have a facilities or maintenance person around, I just badger them with questions because they know more than anyone how, how the buildings are performing and, and what they need to do to keep them running. So, you know, it's not without their issues, but I think that, you know, I think the Mayo Clinic does a pretty good job of paying attention to this. Um, a lot of their buildings are older, and so they fall into a lot of the traps of, you know, buildings that are a little bit older, but some of their newer buildings are definitely better designed and uh, a lot more friendly to the occupant. <laughs> so just for those that are listening to the podcast that may not be familiar with the uh, Delos program, maybe give them just a short overview of what it's all about, because it sort of stands out alone as being, I mean, there are other programs similar to it, but really it's the one that sort of drew the line in the sand and said, people matter in buildings and we're going to prove it. Yeah. So, so Delos is a company that they really kind of their flagship product is the well building standard. And the well building standard is administered by a company that's a subsidiary of Delos called International Well Building Institute. It gets a little convoluted, but there's some good reasons for that, especially around kind of how you create and maintain a standard and eliminate conflict of interest issues. Delos, they really saw an opportunity to look at buildings differently than just as energy efficient machines. And start looking at what all you can do to impact the occupant directly. And so the well-building standard synergizes with energy-efficient standards, but it is kind of a standalone. And there's some other frameworks out there that do some, you know, that propose similar things. But Delos was really kind of at the forefront of this, a standard meant for buildings to describe how to optimize a building for the occupant. And, and to be honest, the standard's still, you know, it's in version one and there's, they're, they're doing iterations of it continuously. The current standard originally applied to office buildings and they're figuring out how to translate the, that information to other types of buildings. And just recently, the uh, CEO, I believe of 
from kind of the lead side of the house joined IWBI right. um, and Rick Federici. So he's kind of on on this project as well, which is great. It brings a lot of great leadership in the standards writing for buildings arena to uh, IWBI. How do you think lead view the world building standard then? Do you think they see it as a competitor or do you think they see it as something that augments what they're doing? I think they see it as both. Right. <laughs> um, Good answer. You know, it's, it's all, in, it's, it's, they're administered by similar organizations um, and USGBC, uh, they're, you know, they're all in constant communication. There's a lot of people that, you know, right. are from that side of the world. And so I think that they see it as, well, oh yeah, we could look to these topics and, and improve our own standard by, by adopting some of them. But, you know, it's also, there's certain purposes for standards and, you know, you may want to pursue lead, but you might not want to pursue well. You may want to pursue uh, well, but maybe not lead. And so, you know, there's some reasons why they could be separate. When I look at the ethos of lead and I look at the ethos of the well uh, lab or well living standard, the IEQ or the indoor environmental quality portion of lead is lame. And I say that and I say that with love. <laughs> uh, because because what LEAD has done is they have brought IEQ uh, IEQ to the forefront. And I want to make sure people are understand there's a difference between IEQ and IAQ. Indoor air quality is just one of six metrics within the IEQ uh, umbrella. And you know, so there's thermal comfort, there's sound, there's lighting, there's odors and vibrations. So when we talk about IEQ, we're talking about all of the sensory systems, which the well living labs and the and that program really focuses on those items. So it's like taking this the IEQ section of lead and just diving into it in a much deeper uh, study. And from that perspective, that's why I really like what you guys are doing, Nick, with that because as you know, my philosophy is if we design for people, good buildings will follow. That's not necessarily the case with lead. Um, you'll get a good lead building, but you may not get a building that's exact that's really good for people as you would if you built to the well living standard. Right, and and one thing that's important to note about the well building standard is that it's a performance based standard. So they there are on site visits that happen post occupancy to make sure that you're meeting the standard. And so it's coming in at the point where the building is occupied and you can really kind of see how it's operating uh, rather than pre-occupancy where, you know, conditions and maybe air quality and various things, how, how the lighting is used, those might not be, you know, exactly the way they would be used exact for when the building is occupied. That's, that's really interesting. I was at a conference last week. I was at the ACG Energy Conference in the States and someone did a great presentation on the difference between LEED 2009 and LEED version 4, and they summed it up beautifully when he said, LEED 2009 was about was being strategic. It was trying to set strategy to get a great outcome. And LEED version 4 is about performance. And I thought right. that really captured it well, and I, I really like the fact, I don't know a lot about the world standard, but I love the fact that it's performance-based because you can't phone it in, right? You yeah, got to do something at that point. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that you have to actually prove something. Yeah, that that's awesome. I mean, you know, transparency and measuring in real time and and follow up. That's where you get the results because there's some consequences, yes. right? Even if it's just shame <laughs> and embarrassment, <laughs> it's a consequence. I like that. That's cool. Totally. Yeah, you know, I think post occupancy surveys uh, tell a lot about buildings, and when I think about people responding to these and the, and the data that comes out and it, you know, it is getting better, but there is no shortage of inventory of buildings out there where we have less than 50% satisfaction inside spaces. Those, those surveys are polling people about their sensory experience in the space. The people don't care about the energy. They don't care about the, I mean, okay, they care about the geometry maybe. And, and there's some environmental ergonomics like, you know, space, amount of space and that type of stuff. But ultimately they're making judgments with their sensory systems. And that's what post-occupancy surveys are asking. I don't think that's, that's a, a full requirement within lead. There are some post occupancy requirements, but not to the extent that I think that Nick, your your uh, standard is is working with. Yeah, yeah, and you know one of the great opportunities I've had working with the Well Living Lab is working with some great behavioral scientists who tell me all the time that people are not you know 
physics. <laughs> thank <laughs> and you. Can't, you can't that approach them with the same, with the same ideas. <laughs> you know, it's funny because we're, you know, humans are born with a natural ability to judge their environment. But to understand energy, you have to go to school. No one I know wants to go, unless you're an engineer, you're a nerd. They don't want to go to school to learn about energy efficiency and these types of science principles. I mean, they're worried about putting their kids to school. They're worried about food. They're worried about making the mortgage payment. And they don't want to be uncomfortable. They don't want the noise from the neighbors. They don't want the bright lights. They don't want to feel cold. You know, these are the types of things that people really focus on. Totally. Totally. So it's interesting, you, the word behavioral came up here because you're seeing a lot of buzz about behavioral economics because people are starting to work out that efficient market theory is BS and everyone is emotional. So maybe there's a new strand of uh, building engineering emerging here, right? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, you know, office buildings are particularly tricky. You can look at different building types and, and determine kind of how many people you need to please at once. And <laughs> how do you approach that? Yeah. Um, because, you know, we have guidelines for the mean, but, you know, at what times do you go away from that? How do you get that feedback and act on it and make sure that, you know, if you're shifting the set point temperature, you're not just, you know, pleasing one person, but making two people unhappy. And so, you know, this, how do you democratize, you know, building comfort preferences in an office is much different than maybe at the home where you're only trying to please a family. So instead of 30 different thermal comfort, you know, situations, you only have two or three or, you know, five or six. So, you know, the building controls have to change and the strategies for how people interact with their buildings have to change based on kind of the number of people in the space that you're really trying to get feedback from for how you're going to control it. You can go down even to the individual and the more personalized control around the workstation or in uh, your own room, you know, that, that can help a lot. So, yeah. We're trying to test all this as much as we can at the Well Living Lab. <laughs> that is fascinating because you're trying to codify behavior, right? And humans are erratic at the best of times. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's interesting because, you know, if you think about it, offices are the factories. You know, 100 years ago, there was a lot of people in factories. Today, there's a lot of people in offices, right? So some offices you can walk in are just soul-destroying cubicle farms, right? And this is one of the things I liked about LEED. I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with it. But one of the things I liked was there was a bit of emphasis on how can you give an individual some control over their lighting and their environment, right? Because it just – then that comes to the behavioral bit. How do you make people want to be there, yeah. right? It doesn't have to be an unpleasant experience or shouldn't be, right? right. <laughs> All you office developers and cubicle farmers out there, please take note. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I really like, um, you know, I did my PhD in outdoor air quality. So we talk a lot about EPA regulations for outdoor air quality. I researched uh, uh, PM 2.5 to 10, which is coarse particulate matter. And it's a pollutant that the EPA, you know, proposed to regulate, but they didn't have enough evidence for it. And so, you know, in that process, I learned a lot about, you know, the benefits, the drawbacks of standards and regulations. And one of the interesting things I've, I've noticed since jumping into the building industry is that it seems like these standards are actually fostering creativity rather than hindering it because it's opening, you know, it's, it's putting walls around what you do or what you can do. And then you have to design a great building around that. And I think that that's a key motivator for, you know, improving buildings is, you know, putting some stakes in the ground and saying, try this and then seeing what, what architect and engineer teams can come up with. And that's really been an interesting process going out and seeing some of the well standard buildings is to see these remarkable buildings that, you know, they've got a table full of awards for LEED and Living Building Challenge. And, and it's just, you know, they've, they're creating remarkable buildings. And, you know, the more I'd love to see that diffuse out into everyday building stock would be great. But, you know, these standards really seem to have changed the industry. And I'm, I'm very new to it. So. Tell me if I'm wrong, but but it's it's been interesting to see kind of the stark difference between you know the CU engineering building, which is probably the opposite of a well building, <laughs> <laughs> and and amazing buildings like the Phipps Conservatory in Pittsburgh. I, I I visited last year, and it's just I was blown away by how much they loved their building, how much the director of the conservatory just you know loved his facility, and I'd love to see that more you know at other organizations. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, being in a building should be a great experience. Should be uplifting, depending on yeah. what the application is. 
But yeah, that's an interesting perspective for you as someone relatively new. So for sort of Robert and I, who are sort of veterans of the business, I guess, it's sometimes you're so in it, you can't step back. So it's interesting to hear you talk about standards because I, I, I blog every week on LinkedIn. And one of the things I always like to clarify, the difference between a code, a regulation and a standard, right? So standard is a suggestion. It's a strong mm-hmm. suggestion. Let's be honest, yeah. right? It's a very strong suggestion if you're in North America. But it is a suggestion. But you're right. It, it becomes a leader, a leading thing, right? It leads you into a, a framework. I like that. Actually, I never thought of it that way. That was an interesting perspective. See, young faces bring interesting <laughs> perspectives. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm that's glad very, I could that, help. <laughs> well, no, and that's very true. And I and I think like you know when you talk about so you have guidelines, you have standards, and you have codes. And until the standards are adopted in the codes, they are, as Adam suggested, they are just a suggestion. You don't have to adopt it. But once they get into code, then they're enforced. And I think one of the challenges that we have as practitioners is getting those codes to adopt the standards and then second step is to get them enforced. And when I think in terms of environmental, you know, ASHRAE 62.1, ASHRAE 62.2 on the residential side and then also ASHRAE 55 on the uh, on the thermal comfort side. And of course, then there's lighting standards as well. And so I think when we see the buildings that you're talking about, Nick, that these are uh, design teams that uh, recognize where human physiology and psychology fits within the architectural world, recognizing that there's standards that can lead that design. And again, standards aren't necessarily the highest mark, but they're not the lowest mark. Code is the lowest mark. Right. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, and it's, and when you look at, and you look at codes, if you were looked at it from an academic rating scale from, you know, an A to an F codes, you know, would be a D grade. You know, anything less than code is going to get a failure, right? And we see people always competing on cost for D-grade buildings. Well, if you can't build a building for D-grade price, less than the D-grade is a failure. So right? there's there's interesting things here, just to put my Don Draper hat on here, right? So code has a naming problem. It should be called minimum compliance. If it was labeled yeah. that, which is what it is, things would be a little bit different, right? It's the same way climate change has a naming problem. It's not climate change. You're talking about pollution and resource depletion. If it was called that, a lot of the lunatics would have to fall away and you'd actually have a grown-up conversation, right? When you call it climate change, the lunatics pile in and next thing you know, it's freaking, you know, it's a political issue. It shouldn't be. It should be a practical problem to be solved. Anyway, no soapbox in here. I don't want to do that. So, Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'm sure Robert has a lot of experience, you know, attending ASHRAE meetings and you know, it's hard to change code, right? Um, and that's why all these standards are out there. So that you have you have things to aim for and, you know, a, a rubber stamp or a gold star to put on your building to say, we've really gone above and beyond to show, you know, to show that this is a great building. And there's value in there. But, you know, for any time that trickles down to code, there's going to be a lot of money, you know, being invested in that. And so we have to make sure it's right. And so that's kind of the, a lot of the research that we do at the lab is trying to bolster the collection of research and try to, you know, eventually produce results that'll trickle down to, you know, bringing that minimum standard up uh, in various ways. And, um, you know, when I first started with the well-building standard, my first response was, oh man, so this is kind of a a rich person's game, right? So, you know, (laughs) the best buildings are going to be amazing. But, you know, the, the engineers are still going to be working in the shed out back. Um, and so, you know, that's, you know, that's not the mindset of Delos or IWBI. You know, they would love to see it, you know, trickle down to all the different areas of buildings. But as a young standard, they're still kind of finding their place in that and, and making sure that, you know, the, the, the values in the standard are correct, right? There's a, mm. you know, we debate a lot about, you know, when you're setting a limit or a suggested limit for air quality, for example, EPA hasn't really set one. There's the National Ambient Air Quality. So that's what lead, uh, or uh, Wells leans on is the outdoor air quality standards. But you have other sources. Um, yes. So there's a whole section about source control that'll also help you meet your air quality standards. So a lot of these sections of the well-building standard are they're synergistic, so you have high, you know, high quality filters, low emitting materials, 
And so a lot of these can contribute to ultimately meeting the feature that requires compliance with the national ambient air quality standards. But, you know, for there could be a better number to assign to indoor air than what we use for ambient air. And one of the things that will really help us determine that is more personal exposure monitoring, because a lot of these EPA limits are set on kind of population size epidemiology, where you have a monitoring station on a roof and you're applying kind of a a general model to apply that exposure to a whole community. But we know that personal exposures vary dramatically uh, depending on where you're at and you spend most of your time indoors. So, you know, ideally we would be measuring indoors to assess these exposure limits and really assess exactly what the air pollution limits should be. And you can kind of expand that same thought to a lot of the different parts of the well-building standard. So they're using the best, the best available knowledge or existing standards to kind of set these limits, but there can always be improvements. It's interesting. It'll be interesting to see how they parley the standard over to um, healthcare. I mean, hospital, clinical hospital environments are very challenging, right? Because you're trying to keep the bad stuff contained and yet at the same time let people have a good experience of being there as good as it can be, right? Yeah, it's it's a totally different kind of ballpark because you have, you know, there's certain strategies out there to, to help the patient, but all those strategies might not be optimal for the caretaker, the nurse, the doctor, and that kind of thing. So you really have to have a pretty flexible building. And then some of the, you know, hospitals are still businesses. So you have to kind of uh, <laughs> meet that, you know, need because, you know, are they going to spend a bunch of money on LED lights or are they going to spend money on a, you know, new operating room or something? Yeah, it's, yeah. You have to really make that return on investment claim and have, have it be a strong one for them to invest in these things that they're worth investing in. But, you know, caring for, for people, usually, you know, you see this, you see the immediate need a lot greater than kind of looking at how, how are we going to maintain this building long term? So as a new, I mean, we're getting sort of close in now, but just to draw it together a little bit. So you're new to buildings, which is good because you're a fresh perspective, which is all really important. So I always like to compare buildings to cars, right? If we built cars the way we built buildings, it'd be like the clown car, you know, it goes down the road and goes, (laughs) so how do you see, what's your assessment on the state of the art of buildings today? So, you know, I'm I'm tempted to talk a lot about, you know, kind of the internet of things and and connected (laughs) sensors and all that kind of stuff, because it is very exciting. I think that we're still determining exactly what the output of some of these are. So how do you act on that data? Yeah, uh, I hear that a lot. You know, honestly, I think bringing in a facilities management, like really training facilities managers in these areas is, is key because they're the ones that are maintaining the buildings. And, and so if you, if you really bring a, a level of understanding of, you know, how do you really help the people rather than just maintain a building to the facilities management teams that I think that'll be a huge help in the industry. And, you know, I, I hang out, like I said, I hang out a lot with the Mayo facilities teams whenever they're over. And um, you can see within the groups kind of some of them are really interested in it. And they, they love kind of how are you controlling this? Light? You know, what is this connected to? Others, you know, they just want to know, call me if you need anything. Um, how do I keep <laughs> things running? And, and you know, if there's different mentalities there. But the more we can keep the building maintainers up to speed and, and really engaged in this it's really important a clinical level the fm team have to be switched on you know it has to be a technical team you can't phone that in right you know it's not like call me when someone gets ebola and i'll come down and change the filter (laughs) you know so i agree with you i think the fm team is critical because even if you do the best possible design and the best possible construction job and commission job and hand it over properly if you get a highly serviced building like hospital and have a very bad fm team that the system, frankly, won't be working very well two years down the line. Right. And as, you know, as, and I'll link it to IoT, now as these types of systems become more prevalent and complicated, there's going to be kind of a, a point where facilities manager could be, you know, doing a lot of data analysis and a lot of really heavy analytics to understand how their building's performing or, you know, the, the feedback from the occupants, you know, in real time. And, and so I think there's a lot of, room there to add a lot of technical expertise to these teams and 
and really kind of, if you don't have a good management team, all your IOT is going to, you know, have dead batteries and not connect to the, to the, to the remote <laughs> wireless set points in a year. And then what are you doing? You're, you're, you're spending a bunch of money on sensors that don't even tell you anything anymore. So that's kind of, you know, that's what I, that's what I've seen a little bit, but you know, the IOT stuff is very interesting and, and advanced controls is interesting. There's a lot of promising stuff there for kind of optimizing an office environment or a home environment, but in general, kind of for the building stock that aren't kind of the, the research lab type facilities. And I think the facilities teams have to be really top notch. Agreed. Absolutely. Do you think that um, if you're Mayo Clinic, I mean, you've got a big building stock already and you have this reputation of being at the AAA end of the business, right? Now, infection control requirements change. Do you think they will be moved to more of new construction and try and retire old buildings? Or do you think they will get into the business of trying to bring their older buildings up to a higher standard? That's a good question. We've, you know, we've had various conversations with the Mayo Clinic about, you know, because this happens a lot, you kind of take concepts in the well-building standard and apply them to a building, but you don't necessarily go for certification. And so they're working on that. It's a bit of a slow-moving behemoth, the Mayo Clinic. <laughs> like so I would tanker. expect it'll be a long time before they're really yeah. kind of turning over buildings. But one of, the, one of the really exciting things that's happening in Rochester right now is there's a whole program towards getting the, build, or getting the downtown and the city kind of modernized in various ways. And right. so... They have this DMC program, which is Destination Medical City, and they're building up a lot of new buildings and a lot of new infrastructure downtown. And in these buildings, you know, they're hoping to, you know, Dallas is in talks right now with trying to see if any of them would be interested in well certification. So, you know, they're early on in any discussions about that, but you know, there's there's hopefully going to be some new construction that's that's well certified or at least borrowing elements of the well building in in Rochester. And kind of one of the one of the things that the lab is hoping to do, um, and it's in our kind of research strategy, is that we know that doing experiments in a lab is not the end all to really getting a definitive answer on, you know, whether you're improving comfort or performance by having some building intervention. So looking forward, we're going to get out of our building and hopefully into you know some male buildings or some uh, buildings in the area and around the United States and start doing some field tests that can expand and increase the cohort size for our original experiments. And that'll really help bolster any results and take it. The lab is good at simulating a real world environment. It's, it's probably really good at finding kind of hints at trends, but um, you know, larger field studies typically always required before, you know, someone like ASHRAE would really be interested in adopting something that we were able to find. Yeah. I, you know, I think one of the cool things that's happening here in, in our in our time frame right now is how much the healthcare industry and the building science community are starting to work together. And when I think about, Nick, what you're doing with the Mayo Clinic, and I think about guys like Kennedy, uh, Kevin Kennedy, who's with the Children's Mercy Hospital, and the clinic work that they're doing in Kansas City with health, uh, Healthy Homes, and uh, some of the other programs that are occurring around the country, bringing the physicians together with the engineers and the architects you know, good stuff has to come out of those discussions. And and when you think back in time, like th- th- this is not new. I mean, in the early days, I think the Surgeon General of the United States, I think it was like 12 years ago, held a conference bringing again the en- the engineers with the, the, the uh, physicians. And it happened in Canada as well a few years afterwards. But it seems like the interest is ramping up. And I think what you're doing is really bringing this to the forefront, the stuff that Kevin Kennedy is doing with the Children's Mercy is also bringing this. And I think this is just a great place and time for, for the both professions to be together doing this research work. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting stuff. And, and, you know, the Syracuse group is, is excellent. The Harvard group is excellent. There's a Center for the Built Environment out in Berkeley. Right. So, you know, there's a lot of great research groups that are kind of digging into these. And one of the fascinating things for, for me as a researcher is how different facilities are approaching the question differently. So we're kind of using the well-living lab paradigm for experimental design uh, versus a chamber or a field study for now. But those other institutions you know, are working on similar things using other paradigms. And you know, in, a, in the building research, it's great to kind of get that research along the whole continuum of put someone in a room for a couple hours and 
you know, see how they do if you expose them to high levels of CO2 and VOCs, but then you know, later on put them in a real office and see if, you know, that performance change is consistent. And there's a whole kind of array of, of ways you could structure a research in between those two. And that's kind of where the lab sits. That's interesting. So look, we need to wrap up now. Um, have you got any more questions, Robert? No, I wish we had more time, Nick. We're going to have to get you back on. You're you're one of our very first guests to come on the show, and we're going to have to get you back again. Yeah, I, think I, I couldn't agree more. This is fascinating for me as a super nerd. So I think uh, what I'd like to do is see how you get with some research, then we'll get you back, maybe talk about some of the results you've got. But in the meantime, I'd like to uh, direct any listeners to you. So what are your social media contacts? We'll put this in the show notes. Any handles you got or any ask you want? Sure. So you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can search Nick Clements, and uh, I should be the one with a, holding an eagle on my arm in my picture. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Absolutely awesome. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and you can also find me on Twitter at, at Dr. Nick Clements. Awesome. I feel grown up because I've interviewed a doctor now. I like this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Nick, right. well, look, thank you for your time. Thanks for coming on, yeah. and we will for sure get you back and talk about some of the results of your really interesting research. That's awesome. Great. I can't wait. So that was an interesting session with Nick. I actually got quite a bit out of that. What about you? It was fascinating, Adam, for a couple of reasons. One, there's a young man there, young uh, researcher who's bringing a fresh set of eyes to the world of uh, building science and health sciences. And to hear him talk about what they're studying, how they're studying, who they're studying it with, and the impact that it can have on architecture, you know, we need to follow his story. The whole story of the Well Living Lab and the Mayo Clinic, we need to follow that. I couldn't agree more. I mean, no, it's really interesting when you're sort of long in the tooth like I am and you're always struggling with the day-to-day stuff of getting something working and a building handed over, you forget it's about the people inside, right? Right. You know, and what came out for me was, you know, the behavioral science aspect of it. You know, in other fields like economics, that's becoming a thing. Hopefully that'll become a thing for buildings. It should be, really, right? <laughs> yeah, it was that was really that was really cool. I like this story about, you know, when he was doing work for the CDC and the Ebola stuff oh, and, yeah. contam- and contamination and how that knowledge attracted the attention of the Delos folks and and the lab and how he found himself there doing the research work that he's doing. And then and in his final discussions about talking about the internet of things and uh and how that fits into facilities management and that ultimately the management team is important. The, the Internet of Things, you know, the data is, is important because it provides feedback to the team. But ultimately, it's the people running that building that make the building work. And, you know, next time when we get them back on, we'll have to talk to them about how do you rationalize the high technology, the sophistication of the Internet of Things with people who are generally not – associated with managing high-tech things. You know, the guy with the wrench and the guys with the gauges and the plumbers and the, the electrician, you know, the guys that actually make the building work every day. Like when someone calls up and says the toilet's not flushing or the, you know, the air handling system's not working or these types of things. Oh, yeah. Whenever I do an existing building survey, first thing I do is go to the BMS and see how many systems are in hand, which is normally most of them by the time I arrive, right? Right. You know, yeah. and there's a, that's just another story about complication and, you know, people not understanding what's going on. The data mining, the Internet of Things, I have a very mixed feelings about. On the sort of glass half empty side, we can't even hand buildings over to work sometimes. So the Internet of Things becomes a bit superfluous. But on the glass half full side, you know, I think a whole industry in within the building industry is going to emerge called data mining, where things are going to be so cheap to monitor and measure that data is be collected, and then there's going to be a profession grown out of that called building data analytics and mining. And yeah. you know, some big beasts like Google are going to get involved. They're going to crunch this data, and they're going to be able to tell you and pass that information down to you know a condo this high with this sort of population profile will use exactly this much water, give or take 10%, and it will be accurate. That's the future right. of managed on-demand resources. You know what You know what engineers say about the glass being half full or half empty? What's that? 
the glass is twice as big as it needs to be. Oh, yeah. If it's a mechanical engineer, <laughs> that sucker is definitely oversized. <laughs> you don't get sued for oversizing. You only get sued uh, for undersizing, right? <laughs> yeah. And slaring yeah. lies one of the problems. But that, that yeah. was great. He was interesting. Really good to see someone young coming in adjacent to the business and then looking at it with fresh eyes. Because yeah. that's what you need sometimes, right? You can't see the wood for the trees. It's very hard to pull back and look at a big picture. So I love speaking to younger people who are new, fresh. Yeah, I agree. Hey, uh, Adam, tell us uh, what you got coming up on LinkedIn or what you're, what do you be post on right now? You, you're always on there. You got great stuff. You got a huge following. So what are you talking about these days and what are you going to be talking about later? I'm trying to mix it up with management, project management stuff and engineering stuff. Like last week I spoke about the Overton window, which is a political science concept. So the Overton window is, you know, the acceptable window of political discourse. What ideas can live in that window that are not too radical that can get you elected? So then I took that concept and applied it to buildings, right? So what is bang in the middle? What's popular? All sitting in our air-conditioned houses and agreeing with the problems. Oh, that's a terrible problem, right? But you turn your TV off and it's just not a problem for you. So life carries on, right? <laughs> and then you you widen that window out. So what's right? What's What's cutting edge? What's radical? What's unthinkable? You know, and you take it out. And if you take it out one side of the window, you're moving towards more freedom. If you take it out the other side, you're moving to more restriction. It's hard to describe, but it's quite an interesting analysis block because what came out of that for me was what's radical on the freedom side, freedom of choice side, is let's deliver buildings that work with no defects. 37 years into my career, I've never seen that, right? So... <laughs> And what is radical for the regulation side, the side where you don't have a choice, where it's imposed on you, is legislation from government that really addresses pollution and resource depletion, right? So Canada signed up for the uh, Paris Agreement. We've got to right. reduce greenhouse gases. Within, I think we've got 13 years left to get it down to a level that I don't think we've got a hope in hell of doing because... No one's willing to make the hard decisions to change building code, put the price of gas up. They're going down the carbon pricing route. It's not going to work, Yeah, in my opinion. And I'm a libertarian, but I'm not crazy libertarian, so I believe in social medicine. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Denmark seems to got a, a grip on this whole thing. You know, they I don't know what they just collectively as a country, the people just seem to understand what it means to have to use combustion, mm. you know, which is an industrial grade process. The temperatures that come out of combustion are industrial grade temperatures. And they understand that that's really stupid and that we ought to be using non-industrial grade temperatures that you get from renewables. And that that just intuitively, that just makes much more sense. But in many parts of the world, and particularly in North America, you know, we're, we're so used to pounding in finishing nails with 25-pound sledgehammers, right? You know, or, or, you know, mowing our lawn with a combine instead of a goat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you know? it's true. Yeah, I mean, in North America particularly, we're so resource-blessed with water and cheap energy. You know, yeah. this is the problem. Price is the mechanism. I'm not a crazy right-wing market guy, but yeah. if something's cheap, you do not value it. It's very simple. If it's given to you yeah. free or next to free, it doesn't have the value. You don't value it, right? Gas and energy and water, but certainly electricity, for example, in Europe is expensive. Very, very expensive, right? Yeah. That's what drives it. Filling your car up with gasoline in the UK, man, you'd have a heart attack if you filled your car up over there. You'd yeah. think there was a hole in the gas tank. <laughs> <laughs> well you know but going back to your comment about you know value if something is so cheap you don't value it and in many ways that's what nick was talking about with the well living yeah. buildings that that people do value them they are good buildings and they do uh deliver on the environmental specifications and on the energy specifications and and because of that people value them yes uh, more i agree versus buildings that are crappy you know, people, you know, they spit on the sidewalk, they, you know, break things. They don't, they just don't care. They abuse it. They, you know, they, they write on the walls. Like you take a school, right? That, uh, that's got, you know, this, the culture in the school has a bad attitude. And part of that bad attitude is the environment that they're in, that the ergonomics is a bad ergonomic uh, environment. And so they treat it like crap. 
No, it's, it's interesting. I mean, things get done in aggregate at government level and the solutions are done in based on aggregate demand, right? So he who shouts loudest and is funded well gets what they want, right? So, yeah, you know, yeah. we as individuals don't have a lot of power, but as a crowd, we do. So if a group, right. large enough group of individuals stop buying iPhones, guess what? Something would change. Right. If a group right. of individuals stopped using offices that were bad for their health, you know what would happen? They'd get knocked down and get redeveloped. Yeah. It's the power and wisdom of crowds that gets things done. That's yeah. what gets politicians attention. Realistically, what do politicians do? They vote. When you send a guy to parliament, his job is sticking his hand up or sticking it down at certain times of the day. That's it. Mm. That guy has no power to change anything other than his vote, which again is an aggregate thing, right? The people yeah. that run the show are the agencies below the politicians. They don't take orders from them. They work with policy, right? So the change has to come from a large enough segment of the population in aggregate to then get yeah. the politicians to vote the right way, to then get the policy changes in place. So, you know, it's a system. Yeah, and well said. It's not going away, right? And I think the answer is aggregate demand, aggregate action. I'm not talking about revolution here. I'm just talking about people exercising their purchasing power and their choices in the right way. Mm-hmm. That's what changes things, right? Yeah. Revolutions, you get killed in that stuff. But, you know, if we all stop <laughs> buying a certain thing, you know what happens? That certain thing goes away. Look at BlackBerry, right? Everyone thought it was the greatest thing. Then we all just decided iPhones were the greatest thing. You know what happened to BlackBerry? They went away. Yeah. yeah. I, I suggested shorting BlackBerry just after the uh, iPhone came out, and some guy said to me, you are crazy. That firm's never going away. Two years, <laughs> that thing was gone. And I didn't have the conviction to short the stock either, right? Uh, <laughs> I'm not tied to my convictions. You'll find this out as we go along. <laughs> uh, well, I think we things change, and so our perceptions yeah, change, and, and our exactly. beliefs change. So, well, I'm looking forward to reading your stuff. I always do on LinkedIn, and I encourage everybody else to take take a look as well. Okay, man. so um, anything you've seen on the uh, social media this week in our industry that's made you uh, go a bit crazy? <laughs> oh, Adam, I just came back from Vancouver, and I saw a, you know it's just it's hard to look at the architecture there. <laughs> <laughs> and I took a photograph and I posted it on Twitter, and it was of these uh, high rises that uh, all glass structures and all of the blinds were closed, <laughs> you know. And they're charging like one point four million dollars for like an eight hundred easy bake, eight hundred square foot easy bake oven, as our friend Jeff McDonald would call them. <laughs> and, uh, and I started thinking to myself, I said, you know, if you go to a museum. And you look at where the artwork is in that museum. It's out of the sunlight and it's out of the heat. Yeah. But these developers think it's quite all right to bake and expose artwork. The clients, the people that buy these easy bake ovens, you know, they hang in their artwork on the wall and they're getting bombarded by UV radiation, oh, which yeah. discolors them yeah. and outgasses. You get particulate. It destroys the painting. And I thought, what a bizarre scenario to see that. These buildings are destroying all of the artwork inside of that structure. But if you went to a museum, you would never, ever see that kind of stuff. And I thought, who does this? And then I thought, I got this wild-ass idea, Adam, that, okay, 800 watts per meter squared solar load, (laughs) solar heat gain coefficient of 0.5, that's 400 watts per meter square internal load. Yeah. And then I said – that's what we use for designing snow and ice melting systems. That's a lot of cooling, man. That's a lot of cooling. <laughs> and I thought if, if society saw that much square footage of melted driveways and melted walks and melted streets that, that uh, ultimately the environment pays for and their tax dollars pay for, there would be an outcry. Oh, yeah. uh, it's But nobody does it. They look at these buildings and it's like, la, 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 la. Oh, it's not a nice piece of glass, you know? Vancouver's the worst because I think all the views are west facing in Vancouver, right? There's yeah, there's a lot. So anyway, so that was that was my uh, soapbox, and uh, but I've got a couple of cool things coming up. I'm going to be talking in Banff at the Alberta Safety Codes uh, Conference, and we're going to be talking about indoor air quality and thermal comfort there. Cool. And then following that is ASHRAE in Long Beach, and I hope we see all of our ASHRAE clan there. And I'm going to be talking on one of the seminars is going to be thermal comfort versus energy, which comes first. <laughs> and, That's interesting. Uh, 
Yeah, that'll be good. And there's a couple of other uh, seminars that we're doing as well. There's big guys, actually. There's uh, five of us doing a panel uh, workshop. Peter Simmons is going to be on there. Dan Knoll is going to be there as well. And a few other guys. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, how not to screw up the design of uh, radiant cooling and heating systems. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're getting into some dark wizardry there, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. Dark magic. That, that cooling shit, you know. And uh, so that's uh, that's what's coming up. And uh, next week or next our next interview, maybe I'll talk to you about the. Uh, I was up in Edmonton uh, taking a class with a friend of mine on uh, what's called QEEG, which is qualitative electrocardiograms, uh, basically brain signature patterns. Right. And uh, people are strapping on these uh, helmets with uh, 19 channels and they're watching brain patterns. And I went up there because I think we can use this to study indoor environments by putting people hooked up to these computers, watch their brain signatures as we change sound, light, temperature, oh, that's odors. very interesting. Very, very yeah. that's, that's proper behavior analytics, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, they are using this stuff now for, for – uh, you know, treating things like autism and uh, attention deficit disorder and other ailments, uh, sports injuries, concussions. So my colleague dragged my ass up there and said, Robert, you got to see this stuff because it might have some applications for your world. And I, it was probably one of the best eight hours I've ever spent in a classroom watching this stuff. It was so cool. So I'll, I'll maybe I'll share that a little bit more next time. Awesome. Okay. All right. Well, I'll leave you just with this one thought going back to your glass boxes. We all love glass. Do you know why? Because glass is architectural pornography. Just remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, Brown uh, Berich at uh, that it's crack cocaine for yeah. architects. These oh, glass yeah. glass buildings and and fancy staircases and you know you know I think and going back bringing it all back to Nick um, and their studies that we're going to find that. This amount of glass that we're seeing in buildings just is not necessary. With the, you know, the the visual stimulation, the lighting requirements for a person in a space does not have to be, you know, ceiling height stuff. We know from an energy perspective, it's not good. We know from destruction of, uh, of materials of construction and uh, artifacts, you know, artwork in particular, it's not good. It certainly creates discomfort, downdrafts, you know. Also. Yeah. High levels of embedded energy in that glass, right? Oh, yeah. Tremendous amounts of high uh, energy, embedded energy. Yeah, so, you bet. There's, there, you know, we got we got to lead this revolution, man. Okay, so till next yeah. time, we'll see you again, okay? Have a good one. All right, take care. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. See you next time.